And we have a very special guest here with us today, Anthony Kilhoffer. Welcome. Woo! <laughs> I like the enthusiasm. Woo! Thank you for coming, Anthony. <laughs> um, so for some of our listeners who might not know, um, you're a Grammy-winning producer, engineer, four, um, songwriter. Four-time Grammy-winning. Four-time Grammy-winning. Just to keep it <laughs> Just to keep the numbers. And um, you worked with many important artists throughout your career. And um, I want to ask you, um, at one, what point in your life you decided to become a creative and work closely with artists? I mean, uh, I always wanted to be an artist. So I think, honestly, I compromised by doing what I, you know, the career path I took because I just decided to help other artists. So I'm just like a, a waiter for our other artists, helping them create their masterpieces and then not becoming to go on stage and take credit. And I mean, well, not necessarily credit, but, you know, like as a hired gun, you know, that's what you do. And at what point, like, did you, like, what was the decision between not becoming an artist and being more towards in the background? I moved things? to L.A. in 2000 from Chicago and I heard OK Computer. And I was like, man, I can't do that as an artist. So that's when I decided to be 100% recording engineer, music producer. And what made you like um, start in the music industry? And I mean, I wanted to be an artist. So from 16 to 25, I tried to be an artist. You know, that was what I did. And it was just what, what I mean, American Bandstand is a young person. That's, you know, I saw that and I just wanted to be American Bandstand. <laughs> and... um. Along the way, um, do you think that you, because obviously like you had that like producer side of you as well while you were trying to become an artist. Yep. Do you think that um, that helped you, um, that helps you right now while you're working with artists because you wanna, wanted to become an artist in the past, that helps you like understand them better and then work with them better? True, I mean, that's a good point because then you can relate to them. You know, you're speaking the same language. You know, you know how important it is for that artist to ha have their vision fulfilled and how much it weighs on them when they're going to put it out in the world because they'll be judged on this forever because it stays on the internet or on plastic forever. So that is their, their one little voice into the world of what they wanted to share with the rest of the world. So if it's not amazingly perfect, then, you know, it reflects on them. And do you try to like, um, how do you balance um, like pushing artists um, to put their like true self into the music and um, have them ready to make that? I mean, I don't think I push them. I think they push me more, you know, uh, not necessarily, you know, I don't think you need to push them. You just need to help refine their ideas, you know, run it down every opportunity. You know what I mean? That's, I think, the best way to, to look at it. And um, throughout your career, obviously, like you had a long career and um, throughout it all, um, how do, would you say the description of being a producer changed over time? Um, I mean, it changed many aspects. Like now, perhaps it depends what you're calling a producer too. Is a producer a beat maker? Is a producer somebody that takes 10 songs and turns them into an EP or an album? So what is the, the use of producer has kind of been thrown around a lot in 2019. So it can be lots of things. Uh, so it's hard to say. Uh, sometimes early on a producer needed to play all the instruments 
there's there's different kinds of producers, right? There's producers that can write string arrangements. There's can producers that just, you know, pick uh, what sonic landscapes. There's producers that will only work on arrangements. There's producers that make the whole product, and then the artist just sings on it. You know, there's you know, all different types. And on uh, which part of it do you usually like to work most in? Uh, I like change. I like varying. You know what I mean. So. I like, uh, you know, from the inception, from the first writing over a loop of four chords to the end, the final product of, you know, turning in the master, the final mix, what it sounds like, all those things. And I know that, like, being a producer, you need to um, really, like, dedicate um, into, like, putting so much work and practice and all that. So while you were, like, first starting as a producer, um, how did you, like, what was... How, what motivated you into doing all of that? Did you have a routine or anything to push yourself? I think it was more like um, life just pushed me at that point. You know, it was like either at one point I uh, moved into a studio in Chicago and lived in the attic for like a month or two. And that was the turning point in my career from being the intern to the engineer. And... um. How do you like um, select which artists that you're gonna work with? What are some of the, like the key qualities that you look for in artists that you're gonna work with? U uniqueness and like somebody that has a gift that is above the average ability to do things such as sing or write. And um, how do you like um, find those artists? Like nowadays, maybe it may be easier through like social media and all that, but like back in the day towards. More I mean, present. mostly I found, you know, after a long enough time, I started out at recording studios. That's where I found artists, right? So in the early 2000s, you know, before laptop lives, uh, you had to go to a studio to make a record. If you had $50 to do two hours or you had $2,000 to do a full day, you know, that's where I found artists in the beginning. And then uh, through that, other than that, I found artists through record companies, you know, like that's basically who I work for. Uh, outside of my own record company, you know, just people on major corporate records that have budgets that need people to work on their projects. And how would you say, like, being a producer and, for example, because you said that, like, um, working with record labels and all that, because obviously, like, they have a vision, but you might have a vision as well, which may not align at times. So how do you, like, balance that out? I mean, honestly, I just compromise and do whatever the in charge person i kind of read the situation mm -hmm. right you never know like who you know it's is it you got to please everyone number one but you have to please the artist first a and r person number two because they're the ones that are approving the budgets right so oftentimes i'm brought in by an a and r or an admin person to help finalize the projects it works in like three stages really you know you'll go in they'll get the you know the artist will get the deal or have the you know budget to go work with a bunch of people or make this whole product five eight ten songs and then somebody's got to like tie it all together make it a one cohesive piece of work and you know put it all together and um how would you say from the first time you started until now um the music industry um affected your growth as a person 
On, as, as a person on a personal level? <laughs> yeah, I mean, not as your like personal life, but like um, like growing within this industry. Like what were some of the things you discovered about yourself? Oh, man, that's interesting. Uh, things I discovered about yourself. Well, how much will you put up with? Because it's like, what do you, you know, how much will you let people step all over you? And, you know, it's, it's tough. Uh, it's hard to explain because I think young people look at this situation as it's a, an amazing place where all dreams are fulfilled and that you get to, everybody gets to contribute their own little thing. But no, it's not like that. You know, the main artist is going to just drop all over you and destroy all your creativity and suck it out of you. And just, <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, good things come out of it, but it is, uh, you have to be willing to give all of your, you know, all your creativity, all your abilities. It's like, I've always, I've made this analogy before. It's like a drunk person, a drunk friend that you need to get out of a party and get back to their house. And there's how many doors you have to go through to get them out of that building into a car and into their home. It's like the same thing with an artist and a record. You know, they have an idea. They have four bars, eight bars for a hook. They're not sure what the beat should be. So let's run through 3000 beats. Is it a real drum? Is it a trap drum? Is it 808? Is it a two, four snare? Is it a three, one snare? You know, you got to run down all those variables until they're completely happy and content with what they're making. And throughout those like hardships, what made you like, because seeing and experiencing those things, uh, what made you like stay in the music industry? I mean, it's, I don't know, it's, uh, it's you know, it's, I'm very happy. I feel like it's winning, you know what I mean? To, to be able to just make music, every, you know, and have a home and a wife and a kid and provide you know, it's, it's, I like that better than managing. Cause then I would try to manage for a couple of years and I just didn't, didn't like that. I didn't feel like being on the phone arguing about, uh, you know, splits and, uh, advances on shows and, uh, ground transportation and visas. That was not what I wanted to do. Even if it made more money, it was just not what I wanted to do. It's just like, that was not winning to me. Winning was working on music every day. So um, you made a great point there, what I was going to ask um, later on, but um, success has a different meaning for everyone. And like some may associate it with job promotion or like financial progress and others like see it as doing what they love and what they're passionate about. Mm -hmm. So how would you define success for yourself? For myself? I mean, I feel like I've already made it. I'm, uh, I mean, defining success... Uh, I feel like I've already made it, you know, I've succeeded. I mean, yes, I could have a, a Lamborghini, but who cares? <laughs> who cares? You know, honestly, you know, I feel like I make enough records, you know, to pay the bills and, you know, that's success. I mean, world domination being DJ Snake and uh, playing Tomorrowland and, uh, you know, having a record company and 25 singles on Billboard Hot 100, I guess that would be good that's success but you know it's so, all it's all how much you want to work for like how many you know you could work yourself to death and fuck over everybody on the way and be super successful if you want to but i mean at some point make your choices to actually accurately reflect the music business um it's really important to give real life examples and can you share with us a moment where um, you've been really challenged and how you overcame that situation? 
really challenged uh, and how I overcame the situation. Man, that's a tough one. In 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 a technical capacity, perhaps. Uh, I don't know when. Uh, when to learn drum programming? I don't know. I guess I don't know. Okay. Super. When was I challenged, and how did I overcome it? I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know why I draw a blank. Maybe while you're like working with some artist, it was like. Hmm. There were some situations that you need to overcome and then how you like um, problem solve that situation. Uh, how you problem solve to get out of situations. Well, I mean, I think always being one head step uh, ahead of whatever you think is going to happen. I don't know. I, I, I'm trying to think well, a reason to problem solve. Or is there a certain like, even though um, nothing specific comes to mind, Whenever like you face a challenge, what are some of the things that you do to kind of like overcome that situation? I mean, do you have, like a method? Research, you know, when you're going into situations like research, every top album in the genre that you're about to go finish the project in, you know, to know not only like what is current and then what they built their basis uh, on, you know, like who the blueprint was whether it's Lauren Hill or the Beatles or uh, you know Daft Punk or Chemical Brothers there's always a blueprint to to whatever music you're trying to finish and do you always like research your artists before working going in and working with them not necessarily because i i think they're always trying to do something new so when you're going back on the previous catalog that's not what their brain is at right now so that's like the first thing I ask, like when you get in the room with somebody. So like, what are you into today? Like, what have you been listening to to inspire you? Where did you grow up? What was the music like when you grew up Who in your house? That kind of thing. I think that's a really good point in a way that um, you trying to make the relationship with the artist and all that. Course, yeah. So how do you like um, make it happen? Do you like go in and ask them questions or what are some of the things you do to... Um, get closer with the artist so that um, the outcome, the music would be more organic. I mean, you just get to know these people and listen to them, you know, and, you know, come in with no kind of attitude. You know, you have to leave your attitude at the door because the star is always going to have the largest attitude and that's why you're there is to make them shine and, and to propel their career, you know. So, I mean, just coming in with like a very humble attitude and just, you know, it's like a glorified waiter position is what I've done. And I think that's why I think people uh, currently in uh, it's hard because I think people, everyone wants to be the artist. So everybody believes nobody wants to fall back. I call myself the king of the fallback, you know, because <laughs> I mean? then there's because there's you just got to help people propel their dream sometimes. And um, obviously in. Um, in the music industry, there are so many like big egos, and yeah. there are so it's a very like stressful environment as well. How do you um, like push yourself to get out of your comfort zone and take more responsibility? I mean, that's tough because you only want you know you have to you don't want to overstep your bounds, right? So how do you take more responsibility? It's a very touchy situation because if you're coming in as the engineer you don't want to overstep the bounds of the producer this producer never call you again but you want to make sure you have a great rapport with the artist uh you know and as a producer like 
you're, you're caught in these things, like you said, you mentioned earlier, like, who are you pleasing? Are you pleasing the manager? Are you pleasing the A&R? Are you pleasing the artist? You have to please all three. And then you have to watch the dynamics between all those people because you can't say too much, maybe perhaps to the manager that then will say, oh, the you know, to the artist, oh, well, you know, so-and-so thinks, da 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 Why did you say this? I can't trust you. You're fired. <laughs> you know, and same thing, you know, you can't, you know, you always have to have the artist back to the A&R because the A&R might not be feeling it and they believe they need to take it in the specific direction and it's their career and they're, they've allotted the money for the budget and all their their life is on the line if this is not successful. So... But at the same time, you have to make the artist happy. So it's a fine line to really walk to close a project. And as a creative, do you have like a certain routine that you have every day? Because obviously it's probably not easy to be like creative every single day because life has a lot of other stuff as well. So what are some of the things that you do to get going every single day? I go like this. Go. <laughs> ha! I'm serious. <laughs> and then how it's like does James that Brown, you? you know, James Brown. It's like you call the spirit. <laughs> I'm serious. Pharrell does it. It works for Pharrell. Kanye does it. It's like, ha! <laughs> <laughs> I know Matthew looks at me like I'm crazy. But I, <laughs> if you really want to know, because you got to get in the mode, because some days, you know, you have a writing session on Wednesday, and I have a nine year old daughter and a wife and all kinds of things going on. So I just, so the writing session at 11 o'clock on Wednesday has got to go. You know, I mean, it's not like, oh, I don't feel like doing it today. You know, that's not an option. At 2 o'clock, you're going to pull something out of your butt, or it's just like, why are you here? So, you know, it's like you tap into the inner shaman thing. But, I mean, that's just we're coming from an artist's aspect and trying to bring that to, to the producer aspect. But, I mean, I'm just a lover of music, so through all the years, I've, I've brought in so many things. Uh, from Sly and the Family Stone to The Grateful Dead to Metallica to Poison to Motley Crue to Rodney James Dio to Pavarotti and Tchaikovsky and, you know. And um, usually it's, I think, um, the process of, like, becoming successful and obviously, like, um, you're a Grammy-winning producer, like, four-time Grammy-winning. And how do you, like, for example, when you had your first Grammy, Obviously, like you're at a point of success and you're at this like top level. And then after that, how do you like uh, motivate yourself to like go back to work again and do all those things all over again? To well, I mean, I just think you have to. I mean, popular culture changes. So you always need to stay a part of popular culture. You know, I mean, the Grammy is a, is a great thing, but I think you have to maintain to be in that circle, maintaining in that circle. You know what I mean? It's like I felt like my last Grammy was 2015, so that's five years ago, you know? I mean, so I have to come back again, you know? And it's uh, one thing in the music business, I, I believe, if you just maintain to be in it, it goes and it flows, you know? You, you, you come back with fire you, as long as you can stay in the circle, you know, and just keep doing the work, you know, it's going to pop off. And it happens, you know, all producers have ups and downs in the career. And I think, like you said, a lot of people, I think, struggle with staying relevant with the current culture and all of the, all that. Yeah. So um, how do you um, stay relevant? I mean, just listen to whatever's popping, like new music, be around youthful people, 
you know, I mean, I've lived through, I mean, I started with 90s R&B. So it's been a long time since 90s R&B was cool. You know, uh, new metal, you know, backpack, rap, trap music, EDM, Deep House. I spent some time doing Deep House in Chicago. I mean, it's like a long, how do you stay real? I mean, just like ear to the ground, whatever youth culture is telling you. Going, traveling, being in like different parts of uh, Chicago, New York, Soho, Silver Lake, you know, in that kind of mindset to see what those people are, are, are listening to. And of course, they're you know, surfing the blogs, whatever the tastemakers, watching tastemakers and, you know, playlists on Spotify and, you know, high beast complex, you know, you know the drill. And how does your, um, like, knowledge of different genres, for example, help you out with a specific genre that you're making music for? I think because sometimes people will reference different genres that they would like their product to sound like their song to sound like. So if you don't necessarily remember like the uh, uh, James or not James Brown, uh, you know, a, a road sound that was used in like a Bob Marley song or an EDM synth that uh, they used in, I don't know, an Avicii song, if you can't know those contexts of sounds and to bring that into a production, you know, you gotta be able to do whatever an artist will ask for. If it's Katy Perry or Kid Cudi, you know, you gotta be able to make whatever, If it, you know, I don't know, that's just me personally, but some artists stick to one lane or some producers stick to one vein and do the same thing and that's their angle, you know. But I, I do like to try to be able to, you know, be versatile and have different people to bring it in for if it needs to be a string arrangement or an EDM drop or a neo soul section, you know, just to have people that you know that you work with that live in those different worlds. And um, I'm, I'm pretty sure that at times you have a couple of projects maybe you're working on or a couple artists that you're um, making music with. So how do you like kind of like prioritize um, cause I know that like thinking about different sounds and different projects, it may not be hard to do it all at the same time. How do you like try to pr prioritize your things? I mean, it's just like whatever is that day, you know, what, you know, it's uh, basically, you know, whoever's release date is when and who, you know, what budget is open and who's closing this. And, you know, it basically comes down to like, you know, what, you know, you're hired to, to fulfill a project. Usually I come in at the end. You know, I do writing sessions with a bunch of people all the time, and then what I've done for years is just come in at the end of projects, mix the albums, any additional production, arrangement changes, kind of thing. For, for example, writing sessions, when do you feel um, most creative, like by yourself or with other people around you? Definitely with other people, 100%. You know, because I'm not much with the actual pinning of the hook. Mm -hmm. I'm good with melodies and chord progressions and beats and tempos, which is very important in keys, you know, uh, you know, to try to change keys because oftentimes people write songs and keys they're comfortable with, but is not pushing them as a vocalist or an artist or just even, I think every key has a different vibe, you know, uh, C minor to F sharp minor is, uh, those are two completely different keys that will invoke completely different emotions. And if people are comfortable only playing in a specific key or if you're using a guitar or a keyboard and you only play an A, then, you know, you're stuck, you know. 
And um, what would your advice be to um, aspiring producers who are not working with other people, but maybe by themselves? Like, would you advise them to go on and like work with other people and kind of like build their craft out of them? hundred percent. This is my thing with that is because, uh, especially in this day and age, people don't like to collaborate. Everyone thinks that they have all the answers, which is untrue. It's like Steve Jobs didn't go into a room by himself and like six months later come out with the iPhone. Okay. Sure. Yeah. So the best <laughs> innovation comes through collaboration. And I think uh, uh, it's a big thing with uh, kids these days. They don't believe they need to do that, especially with computers and everyone's. I came up in a, in a place where everyone worked at a studio. And so you go into a studio with, you know, usually one studio had different rooms. And so while you were in your room, you'd meet other producers that were doing things that would influence you or, you know, you would later collaborate with them or you would find a writer so that was always inspiring and always like testing you. And now they have, you know, YouTube and everybody watches YouTube. But I think the people that are putting the videos on YouTube are not, it's like the people that can't do teach oftentimes, right? So that's why. So they're, they're teaching you incorrect methods of doing things, you know. But so you've lost, in my opinion, the whole like hierarchy of learning. You know, like Sparta in Athens was the place of knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or no, it wasn't Sparta. It was Athens. What a, I've been drinking today. A- Athens <laughs> was the place of learning. Sparta was the place of war. So anyway, so there's no uh, Athens right now where, where young people can collaborate and push each other further. I guess maybe after it's released and then they can then, and since music is re- released more rapidly now than it was in the early 2000s, then you know, maybe they're just judging in the past tense and then they're taking the influence from what's been birthed to the world where before it was a personal thing that you did in a studio when you learned things and then you took it back and you retooled your thoughts from what you learned in that room or in that building. Like the record plant where I came up in 2000s had four studios. So in that, in that building would be Pharrell, Timberland, Kanye, and like who knows, somebody else, or Britney Spears. So whatever you would run into those people and they would then, it would inflect whatever you'd, you'd, you'd pop in their room and hear a song and then it might change your opinion of your production. You know what I mean? And um, obviously, like, back then, like, you're, you had this experience, but maybe now I, I feel like a lot of producers, like, they're trying to do it at home and they don't have, like, maybe the means to, like, go into a studio and meet these artists and all that. What would your advice be to them? I mean, I think that's what you're saying. So maybe they're not really producers because they're at home just doing it by themselves. I mean, maybe they are doing it, but, I mean, the building, the record plant still exists. I was just there the other day. Trippy Red was there and a bunch of this, like, a new era of, those people actually making records that people care about and inspire the world. So I don't know. I, I think what are my, what is my, what'd you ask? What is my, what would your advice be to them? I don't know. That's tough. Work hard. <laughs> but I mean, um, how are the like connections or the networking and all that being made? today I mean, you can go to social media i mean murder beats is a great example of what a you know producer in this era how he came up you know that's the prime example he hit up people on twitter and was like just on the migos and people you know you can do it that way i mean that's a good start you know i mean i'm not saying not to do that you just have to have the be able to do the audible when you get in in front of them you can't do the same trick every day I'm going to give you 
four different years in the past, and I want you to give us an important memory from each. So okay. the first year would be 2000. 2000. I started, uh, I was DJing a party in the Ukrainian village of Chicago uh, on the 3rd of January of 2000. I took a plane to Los Angeles. It was snowing in Chicago. Uh, I got to LA, no, actually San Diego, then drove to LA to see my sister first. And I was like, man, why am I living in Chicago? And then I, uh, I, while I was in LA, I made a resume. I went to Kinko's on Riverside in the Valley and I faxed it to like 20 studios and bought a cell phone. And I got a couple callbacks. And from that interest, I did some interviews and then I drove back, or no, I flew back to uh, Chicago, packed up a U-Haul and drove out here and was here by February 5th of 2000. So that was the year you actually made the transition from Chicago to LA. Yes. And how was the transition like? Was it like difficult to adjust to LA or? It wasn't necessarily difficult. I'd already been in the music business for about four years working at Chicago Tracks Recording Studio. I had already worked with Kurt Franklin, R. Kelly, uh, Crucial Conflict, Ministry, uh, a bunch of Chicago acts. So I had already kind of known, but you know, then moving to LA, I just had to start all over again because I had none of those plugs, none of those connects. So. And was the music scene different from um, Chicago and LA? hundred percent. And how was it different? Well, uh, you know, LA is was pop, rock, new metal, uh, and Chicago was R and B. Um, alt rock, smashing pumpkins, kind of uh, ministry, industrial Chicago, which people probably don't even listen to industrial music anymore, but it would be like Trent Reznor, Nine Inch Nails, ministry started all that, Rob Zombie, that kind of thing. That was Chicago. And moving on to the other year, 2005. 2005, uh, I would have been in Los Angeles with Kanye West and John Bryan at the record plant or Chalice completing or no just starting late registration and how did you like started um, working with Kanye and how did you meet and living in Koreatown um, how did I start working with Kanye I was an assistant at the record plant recording studios and he was a young inspiring producer so as an assistant at a recording studio if a producer comes in or an artist and they like I want to book studio but I don't have an engineer the studio manager will call a young, inspiring assistant and say, son, would you like to come to the studio and step up and be a first engineer in this session? And, you know, I said, yes, why, sure, I will come right down. And so, you know, it didn't even matter who it was, you know. But, I mean, at the time, so we started, yeah, I think it was a Marsha Ambrose session Kanye was producing, and uh, we met on that, and then he came back producing another session, and he asked for me, and then you know, he got a record deal the following year and he came back and we just locked in for 14 days and did the beginning of college dropout. And um, did you have any like engineering experience before you got that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I said, I'd been in Chicago. I'd done ministry records. I'd done R. Kelly records, Maxwell, Kurt Franklin, uh, a bunch of indie rock stuff because that was my initial, what I wanted to do was like... Uh, what Brad Wood was doing at the time, Chicago was like all about uh, 
Veruca Salt, Smashing Pumpkins, Liz Fair. That was like, uh, this is when Alanis Morissette was running the radio waves. Like this Alanis Morissette record was like the first record was ever made outside of the normal studio. Like they made this record on an ADAT, which people don't even know anymore, but it was like, uh, it looked like a VCR and you could record eight tracks to it. So it was the first out of, and then it went on to sell like 14 million copies. You know, so like that was the that was the world. So everyone was chasing that. Everyone was trying to find a girl with a guitar that could sing these power ballads that would, you know, which was Liz Fair and Brad Wood was kind of who was doing that in Chicago, who I was watching inspiring to. But then it just didn't work out with them. Or I mean, it didn't work out with me. I tried to get a job at a studio, but they didn't want me. <laughs> and um, moving on to the next year, 2010. 2010, uh, April, uh, April 3rd, 2010, I had my daughter, uh, Aria, and we were in the middle of Dark Twisted Fantasy in Hawaii and uh, gave birth to her in San Diego, California at like 6.30 in the morning, and then there was an earthquake at 9 in 2010. So what did that do? And then, so I was also doing live music with Kanye. I was playing back Pro Tools stuff. And then we had a gig in Abu Dhabi and I fucked up and he screamed at me and I stopped doing that. <laughs> <laughs> no harm, no foul. So wait, 2010, then as we know, a very meaningful year for you, especially like your daughter was born. Yeah. And then um, obviously like My Beautiful Dark Twist of Fantasy, that was like one of the most memorable albums of all time. So one, yeah. So how did you like kind of balance your like personal life and then also your Man, work life? It was in fucking sense? wild. Just, oh god, it was so crazy. So I had a you know, so it started in January. So we started that album in January, and so I was in Hawaii, and my wife was already pregnant from the previous June, right? So I was just, so you know, it was serious. Uh, but I mean, I worked January, February, March. You know, we were in Hawaii the whole time, and uh, then I came back and took a couple of days off, like three, four weeks off. We had the baby, and then I brought the baby back to Hawaii to finish the album, and she like rode on my chest, the little child, <laughs> like literally ten days old on the airplane, and then we had a little place, and we had a little, like extended stay thing, and you know, we worked twelve-hour days, me and the other engineer, Andrew Dawson. So I would work 12 p.m. to 12 a.m. and Andrew would work 12 a.m. to 12 p.m. And then, you know, I'd try to come home at 12 noon, hang out with the child, relieve the wife, uh, you know, perhaps get off early if no one was in the studio from like 10 a.m. to noon, you know, take the kid to the beach, get her out of the house, and then go to sleep, wake up, drive to the studio at midnight, work. Work again. Yeah, it's tough. I don't think it's like, I mean... I remember driving to the, you know, out, you know, it was outside of Honolulu and no one was on the freeway because, you know, at midnight, no one's on the freeway in Hawaii. There's nowhere to go. It's a vacation place. Yeah, that's true. That makes sense. But also, um, how was like going more into the album? How was like mastering an album like that? Was it how was like the creative process in that? I didn't master the album though. That, I mean, uh, that was Vlado. Uh, I mean, how was the creative process? The creative process was like, uh, it was like a, I call it musical survivor. You know, because Kanye flew out a lot of people, 
uh, every day we would go to the studio. Uh, he had a giant house on the beach, not on the beach, but ocean view, I guess. And then he had a chef, right? So if you were there, you just go to the house and have breakfast. So whoever was coming, if it was Rick Ross, if it was Bon Iver, if it was Jeff, if it was Mike, if it was me, if it was playing Pat, if it was Cuddy, Emil, uh, you just go to the house and you'd have breakfast. And then if you wanted basketball, it was at 10 o'clock. you play basketball. And if you, and then from 10 to 12 was basketball, and you should be at the studio by 2 or you're slacking, and then you stay there until 2 in the morning or later as long as you could stay. That's how that was mastered. And that went on from January till June. And then June was uh, moved to New York City to complete at Electric Lady Studios. And for example, um, you said that like you worked with like late res registration, mm -hmm. and then this album, obviously. Like, when do you know as like a creative? When do you know that um, an album is done? And then, cause I know that like whenever you record something, you want to change little things, and obviously, like you listen to the songs over and over and over again. And mm -hmm. when, like, what's the right time that would you would say is well, I, I wouldn't say it's the artist tells me when it's done. You know, you just try to push yourself to as much as possible to fulfill what they want. You know, I mean, that's why I'm saying I'm just a servant to the artist. You know, uh, when I say it's done, you know, I send it to personally on my own productions. I just send it to a few choice people and I just play it to them. And if they say it's, it's fine, then it's fine because you can just go all day long, but you got to step away from it, in my opinion, you know. I like to do uh, Trevor Horn, you know, was it Trevor Horn? Who, who did the oblique strategies? Uh, anyways, uh, he had this theory that you work quickly and you work fast with minimal things added. So that's something I try to, try to live by. So moving Brian, on. Brian Eno was the oblique strategies for uh, studio. He make, has this card set that helps with those kind of creative things. So moving on to next year, 2015. 2015, Los Angeles, California. I spent most of that year uh, at Henson Recording Studios with Kid Cudi making, uh, what was that album? Speeding Bullet to Heaven. Mm -hmm. And uh, mixing a lot. I think I did uh, Dirty Heads, maybe a Niggy Azalea record. There had to be some that was Life of Pablo writing, different Life of Pablo writing sessions. Um, where was my studio in 2015? McCadden Enterprises. I was a Hollywood, uh, I had a studio in Hollywood, Lexington and McCadden. And Zane, I, I mixed some records for Zane in 2015. And obviously, like, for example, with Kit Cudi and with Kanye West, like, you worked with them for a really long time in um different projects mm -hmm. so how is it like working with the same artist and, and and i know that we touched on this but how is it um different working with the same artist but in different projects and um how do like you set your mindset on to the next project i mean usually you just read them you help them fulfill their vision right so like so you know you get the brief you know it's like what is so what are your thoughts like in the in the fashion world people use mood boards right you go into some place and they have like uh, a wall uh eight foot you know wall with things pinned to it 
you know, like these are only the colors of fabric and these are the only angles in the clothes. So it's the same thing. You try to read on what they believe, you know, like this is like, you know, Cuddy's speeding bullet to heaven. The references were in utero. You know, that was basically the only speeding bullet to heaven reference was in utero or, you know, I don't know. It just depends. You got to ask and you have to like think also in popular culture of what's hot you know, and how to land somewhere in between, you know, because artists don't, never want to say they want to be on KISS FM, but they need to be on KISS FM. Mm-hmm. So they That's always want to say that they want to do some crazy stuff and like an outreaching, completely artistical thing, but the record company doesn't want a completely artistical thing. Uh, I mean, they do in, in some aspects, but you have to still be able to be something that is KISS FM Popular culture acceptance is what I'm saying by the Kiss FM branding thing. And um, so we've been through your experiences of your career starting from 2000 and then to till 2015. Yeah. So if you could go back in time and give your younger self an advice, what would that advice be? Ask for more publishing, ask for more money per uh everything that you've ever done ask for more points uh i don't know learn the music business earlier like i didn't understand the business of the music business until 10 years in i i I knew way more technical aspects of how to make a hit song before i knew how to monetize a hit song or how it was monetized by other people you know how publishing deals work how co-publishing deals work how many points are on a record? Those are all things I should have known. I mean, I didn't know. And that, that's the thing with the music industry. They don't want you to know. It's like a whole smoke and mirrors things of managers, agents, and attorneys that are just trying to skim off the art that people are making. You know, since Napster and streaming and the loss of record sales, you know what uh, fee has not been reduced? An attorney's fee, okay? So, I mean... That's just the reality. You know, producers make less money. Artists make less money. Attorney's fees are still the same as they were in 96. You know, when I started in 2002, you could get, you know, $12,000 advance producer fee on a Beyonce or on a Destiny's Child uh, track six on a CD. Like, not a single, just track six. You get $12,000 advance for producing that beat. Now, if you got a $10,000 advance for uh, artists on a major record company, you would be lucky, unless you're Pharrell, and then you could get your $50,000. So it's like, for an advance, that's not, you know, before royalties, before publishing. So, you know, that's what I wish I knew previously, because, you know, perhaps uh, I waited too long to like press the business side more. And um, I know that, like, right now, for example, you started your own record label mm-hmm. and you're working with new artists. Like, what's your um, vision and, um, like, what do you want to change with your own record label within the music industry? I don't really want to change anything. I just want to be able to build and inspire the next generation of creatives. You know what I mean? I want to... But I want to have like a good run, right, of, of people that really inspire. Like, you know how Kanye touched a lot of people, of creative people. Uh, I want to have, I want to be able to like make five of those people, you know. 
how Frank Ocean has identified with a lot of people and how Travis is, you know, a lot of people identify with Travis. How do, how do I do that? Not just make their music, but help them achieve, you know, international super stardom, you know, and be on a positive, not, not super positive thing, uh, but, you know, not negative, you know, not promoting hate, not promoting like crazy sexism, not promoting gangs, not promoting, you know, just promoting creativity, you know, and inspiring people to, you know, be creative, live their best life. And um, as we're wrapping up the show, um, what would your advice be to aspiring um, producers or artists or people who want to work in the music industry mm -hmm. and um, they know that their passion is music but they may be feeling lost about where to start, how to start and what to do in the music industry. What would your advice be to them? So first off, read Donald Passman's Everything You Need to Know About the Music Business because that is the, is the long and the short of exactly everything you need to know. You know, uh, Find one specific thing in the music business that you are most passionate about and then just put all your things into that one entity. You know, like don't try to be in promotions and then be a producer and then be an A&R and then, you know, just one thing and, and stick with it and go with it. Find one genre and stick with it and go with it. You know, I think that's the, that's the best. And, you know, to listen and always sometimes to like listen to critiques of people that are not in the, the music business. If you want to be a producer, play it for people that are not music snobs and get their opinion because oftentimes they're the ones, they're the actual consumers. Other people that are into music and know every artist in the world are going to tell you that what you're making is great because they can understand, they can relate to it. You know, the, if you can sway like a uh, your middle-aged cousin that, you know, doesn't know who Ariana Grande is, you can make them move and excite them through music, then you're doing something. Not uh, your other 23-year-old friend that smokes a bunch of weed and they, they're like, ah, it's amazing. Well, um, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Um, it really means a lot to like learn from your experiences and your perspective on the industry. And I Thank think you. a lot of our listeners, um, it's going to be really helpful for them while they're starting their career in the music business. Thank you. So um, thank you so much for being here. No problem. Come see uh, the first gen at El Cid every other Thursday throughout the year and into next year. We have events every other Thursday, El Cid. And where they can um, follow first gen? Uh, first gen on the Instagram, on the Twitter, on we have website. So make sure you guys <laughs> follow first gen. All you gotta do is Google it one s t g e n underscore. And um, you can attend to all the events. Bang bang. For more, subscribe to Came a Long Way on Came a Long Way Apple Podcast page, and follow us on Instagram at Came a Long Way.